The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to the second hour of Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I, uh, I'm very happy today that we're doing something a little bit different. Um, for those who don't know, when I'm not wearing my TNT Radio cap, I'm also I'm wearing a different cap. It's a as a uh, founding director of the Rising Tide Foundation. It's a Montreal nonprofit that I co-founded with my wife and president of said foundation, Cynthia Chung. Uh, who is going to be my guest today for the second hour. And we're going to talk about a a very important film project, a whole series that she's spearheading. I'm helping a little bit, but she's spearheading, writing, narrating, and really leading in the the production design with our good friend, Jason Dahl. Uh, Cynthia, baby, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. (laughs) All right. I... uh, I know that we're uh, we're going to talk about uh, some really fun, big ideas. There is obviously a, a very sick meeting going on right now. It happens every year in uh, Davos, Switzerland, where you hear a lot of technocrats um, gl- really getting giddy in a creepy way about living in an age of scarcity, trying to figure out a way to rebuild trust with a world that for some reason doesn't trust them anymore, but yet still wants and expects them to be good little subjects, eating bugs, living with less, adapting to scarcity. And uh, and for that reason, I think what you've done by launching the first two episodes of an ongoing series, um, dealing with the, the most important concepts that human beings should be struggling with in terms of why there are no limits to growth. This is such a strategic video series that you've produced. We've, you've just put, released episode two and uh we're going to talk about that today but before we do you made a trailer and i think what we'll do is play the trailer for people watching they can they'll get the full experience if you're listening you'll get a little experience too and and then we'll talk about that so if you're ready to go trailer time we have to prepare for a more angry world It is common in our modern day and age to hear the phrase zero-sum. This theory of zero-sum first originated with the advent of game theory, the mathematical theory of games of strategy. The quality of life is going to go right back to practically zero. But can we be certain that we do live in a zero-sum world governed by limited resources and selfish self-interests? After all, it is acknowledged by the theorists themselves that the entire functioning of their mathematical model relies upon the assumption that we are governed by selfishness.
All right, that was Escaping Calypso's Island trailer for episode two, A Journey Out of Our Green Delusion, which you've chosen to name uh, The Curse of Game Theory. So, Cynthia, what made you, uh, as to start this off, what made you decide The Curse of Game Theory was, was going to be something you'd want to tackle uh, to help people break free of this idea that there are these absolute limits to growth, that we have to adapt to scarcity, live with less, think small? What 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 is it about, why game theory? What, well, game theory, I don't know how how much people are aware, is really at the core of what is shaping most of how we are we are thinking of the world, um, including militarily speaking, um, or even the concept of uh, limited resource and uh, scarcity and these sorts of things. They um, are very much coming from the mathematical model of game theory which has a whole bunch of problems with it, fundamental problems with it, when you just look at what the assumptions were in, um, you know, that that were laid out before the model itself was was formed. And obviously, I think there's there's a problem today where we kind of worship a mathematical model without realizing that math mathematical models are are not some kind of like, um, you know, truth serum or, or something that's just absolutely perfect and objective in, in measuring the, the reality and projecting the future of the, the reality that we, we live in, but actually are completely dependent on the parameters that have been chosen by the maker of said model. So in the case of game theory, there's a whole bunch of problems because it's all based on the assumption and it's purely just the assumption that we are, in fact, governed by selfish self-interests and thus goes on to make all of these other assumptions based off of this assumption and then, you know, creates a mathematical model based off of that. But as we make a point in this um, episode, uh, a mathematical model can um, look like it's functioning. Um, but is not actually a, a, a real reflection of reality. And we we saw that in a very stark way with the 2008 financial crash, that mathematical models are not actually 100% right all of the time. And we really do have to look at the parameters of uh, these kinds of models. There's also the other issue that uh, these sorts of models like the limits to growth uh, model that there was a supercomputer in the 1970s that the ABC News uh, had broadcasted. This made um, waves internationally, and it was very much um, spearheaded by the Club of Rome, which, by the way, the uh, the whole World Economic Forum is also largely um, a product of the Club of Rome agenda. And this supercomputer had made all of these predictions of how basically uh, we're now 50 years into the future, it had already been predicting like basically end of civilization scenarios. And they had done um, various parameters saying, okay, well, let's, you know, tweak this a little bit and let's tweak that a little bit in terms of of whether we we die of pollution or whether we die of, uh, of lack of food or, you know, et cetera. And they always said that it was uh, basically inevitable that civilization was going to end at a certain point, kind of all hitting in the, the same point in the future. And uh, now we see 50 years into the future that 
this computer that had made these predictions in the 70s was completely off in a lot of the predictions it was making for even resource depletion, such as chromium, for instance. It had predicted that we would be pretty much out of chromium uh, by this point in time. And in fact, we see that the uh, availability of chromium and other uh, types of, of metals and minerals have increased exponentially compared to what this uh, apparently flawless supercomputer was, was making predictions of. And one of the reasons for this is because our ability to, like our relationship with resources, changes qualitatively based off of the innovations we're making. And there's the assumption that we're not able to, to continue to make innovations, which again is, is clearly uh, untrue with just comparing this 50 year window between this supercomputer of the 1970s and where we're at now. And, and thus the resource, you know, availability, uh, changes based off of that for one thing. And also just the fact that, you know, we're not actually aware of what is the actual amount of a resource typically uh, as well. So these supercomputers are not able, these mathematical models are not able to make uh, accurate predictions ever. Like the, the mm -hmm. actual trend for these computers is actually quite off the mark. And it's because they're not able to make the prediction of human in innovation, which is, I would say, a pretty impossible task for a mathematical model to make the predictions of of the innovations that we're we're able to make so i guess that's it in a bit of a nutshell yeah that's a good nutshell that's good and and you make the point as well in the in your in your video series and your accompanying writings as that that even the agricultural uh collapse that was predicted by these models back in the 70s um proved to not only not be true but the very opposite has happened and that agricultural land uh, per capita productivity of, of land use for agriculture has also increased in ways that none of these models said were possible. Um, give some examples of that. Yeah, so in the, the video, we use the, the USDA um, uh, data to, to look at this, and uh, you see that agricultural productivity has increased in relation to the growth of the world population um, drastically. And in the case of uh, China and Brazil, it's om uh, almost three times what they were producing in 1961. And again, this is, this is a greater growth in food production compared to uh, population uh, growth. And we also see that the land that is required for agricultural production is, has also decreased drastically due to efficiency. So again, in Brazil, it's, um, it's uh, almost reduced by half um, in order to produce more. And in, uh, the United States too, it's, it's, uh, it's gone, you know, from 2.5 hectares, uh, to 1.3, 1.3 hectares, uh, per, uh, per capita. So it's actually, um, these are very positive innovations that are just not being discussed. We are largely encouraged to think that we live in a world where scarcity is getting to the point where, uh, we're going to have like an apocalyptic <laughs> situation almost. Yeah. And these are things that are being promoted, not only, you know, the promotion of, of, uh, the lack of resources, but this idea that we have no choice at the end of the day, but to be selfish you know, self-interested people. This is really a ploy very much again, a la World Economic Forum that encourage 
encourages us to be um, a more predictable avatar within the system that they wish to bring about. So it's much easier to control someone if they actually accept that viewpoint of themselves as a, a selfish, self-interested person. And it's much more easy to predict that person's uh, behavior through reward incentives and, and punishment incentives. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not actually, it's never been proven that we are this way. And it also hinders from this idea that we can actually cooperate. And um, it's not about a zero sum, you know, approach to other countries that it's like us or them sort of idea. But actually, in this uh, episode, we ad we address this, there is this paradox that actually cooperation brings about the best optimal outcome. It isn't, you know, these sort of game theory scenarios or like, hey, you're on a, an island and there's 10 people. <laughs> what 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 do you do to survive the longest, you know, kind of artificial uh, scenarios that people are constantly encouraged to think of themselves in and they're encouraged to think of geopolitics this way as well. The the largest optimal outcome is to actually cooperate with other countries, even if those countries don't have as much to offer in trade at the, the moment, because by helping to invest the infrastructure and thus the stability, the economic stability of these countries, they will increase in their productivity and there will, there will actually be more wealth to trade with um, from that standpoint. So it's actually um, a larger payoff in the end. And then you don't have to worry about uh, war, which is obviously not in anyone's um, best interest in terms of the welfare of, of the society that you're, you're, you're dealing with. So it's really um, a kind of scenario to, that encourages the idea of artificial scarcity and the fact that war is inevitable in order to better isolate people and, and control them. Yeah, and I would just say, based on what you just said there, that um, the danger of the this evil Pygmalion effect is so visceral because if you really believe in these computer models and the assumptions associated with the models of selfish humans that are really thus very, very unlikable, if humans are just in their nature, just selfish beings, and a nation state is just the sum total of selfish impulses, then um, you will think not only that it's inevitable, that these crises these crises are hit but maybe that it's it's a necessary evil to manage these evil people the, these evil beasts and that in that sense you'll start sabotaging farm production like we see with the the whole davos program to limit fertilizer use in canada and the netherlands and germany across the world they want to reduce the world um agricultural production by artificial means that there's no reason for farms to be shut down or to, for this war on farms to to happen but they're living into it so it's this again it, it's it, it's this idea that almost like a weird evil god complex that the computer models have brainwashed so many of these wannabe elites to think that their perception of reality is what is going to shape reality and not the laws of nature itself which as you pointed out are work better when we're when we're cooperating when we're loving each other when we recognize that our, our true nature is not to be selfish but our self-interest is better maintained when we're loving our neighbor when we're working with our neighbor and actually building up systems of creativity so we're going to go for a little commercial break and then we're going to continue this flow and i want to ask you some questions about malthus as well uh, when we come back on tntradio.live 
Now, as we move into an election year in US politics at a time, when the Western Empire is under attack from within, as if an orchestrated decline is the plan. Whilst at the same time, the rise of BRICS nations represents a rise of a new multipolar order. Institutions that have controlled the world are at last being questioned for their behaviour and their failures. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the proof shall set us free. Those two statements sit at opposite ends of the zeitgeist in a world that is filled with death, destruction, deceit, and a wholesale unwillingness to hold anyone in power to account, except for anyone who takes power against the ruling elite, of course. And then we have seen how that system works. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the National Security Advisor to the President. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming President of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. At this moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. All right, we're back with the second segment of the second hour with my wife and co-creator of a new documentary series, Escaping Calypso's Island. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a very junior co-creator here as her assistant. In, in in full honesty, full disclosure, 
Um, Cynthia has written, produced, narrated uh, this documentary series, and we're talking about some of the elements and important strategic concepts behind it. We were talking about game theory, its devastating consequences on human imagination, human reason, as well as the geopolitical consequences of the world. And a lot of what you were saying, Cynthia, reminded me a little bit of of Thomas Malthus, who also comes up in your uh, in your script in your in your story. Can you say a little bit more about the the? Is there a connection between this character from a long long time ago and the reemergence of these nasty ideas in our current age? Yeah, well, Malthus, um, again, it's brought up in in our uh, documentary, uh, was the one who created the whole uh, Malthusian growth model, which is uh, basically um, a very simple way of looking at human population growth versus um, the resources we need in order, the basic, you know, things that we would need in order to support a growing population. And Malthus uh, made the the point in his his growth model that there would be a point where in the future, if the human population continued to grow, we would hit our carrying capacity, which meant that the resources that we had available to us would no longer be enough to support the growth of the human population. But the the problem again with this uh, model is that there is no set defined uh, point of what is the predicted carrying capacity. And again, this is an issue based off of the fact that we constantly have innovation. Uh, for instance, the agriculture, agricultural innovation has uh, really allowed for the human population to, to expand uh, quite a bit. And so Malthus was not really able to have a calculated uh, point of the carrying capacity, but he he just kind of threw it out there that he predicted that uh, 100 years from the time that he was uh, making this model, which was in 1790. So he predicted by 1890, there would be uh, a point where we would hit our carrying capacity and the human population would have a massive collapse um, where, you know, it would be a complete crisis about half the reduction of the human population sort of situation, very similar to the Club of Rome supercomputer prediction of end of a civilization scenario. And so even though Malthus didn't really have a, a mathematical you know, calculation to justify this prediction, he nonetheless uh, put forward a, a bunch of political policies saying that you know, we needed to prepare for this um, crisis point 100 years into the future and he was he was basically encouraging things that you would later see in Nazi Germany where we would have to not have health care for the poor because it's just not um, feasible and it's also taking away from resources more quickly and uh, this sort of treatment that we just didn't have enough to go around so we need to already make plans for who are valuable members of society and who are not valuable members for society and obviously um Malthus's prediction was completely off uh we have not we're even today nowhere near hitting um that point in carrying capacity and this is not a scary thing and again you know the documentary really shows how we don't need to be afraid of um population growth it's not uh, a plague like we've been uh, brainwashed to think about um but the the issue is is that they continuously try to push this this prophecy that we will eventually hit this uh, carrying capacity even though 
we see looking at everything that would would cause um, a lack of of uh, resources that this we're 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 actually getting better and better at producing the resources we need um, and supporting a, a larger population. Yeah, and Mal Malthus's theories uh, these are not just ivory tower exercises in uh, in population theory. It, these were put into action by the British Empire. You know, like people often. They right. they treat the, these this this stuff in the realm of ideas, but Malthus was the key guy who managed the British East India Company's Haleybury College, Bentham, all of the leading grand strategists of the British Empire were mm -hmm. were followers of his thinking, and they they justified the British Empire's creation of artificial famines in Ireland, in, in India, to lower mm -hmm. population growth. Um, yeah. So, it's so really these things, yeah, that are like promoting themselves seriously. as scientific, it's it's like it's ultimately very political, you know, in the case of uh, Malthus or the Club of Rome, uh, limits to growth policy. It's all uh, very clearly for a political agenda. And they use mathematical modeling to justify what they want to bring about. But there's there's no scientific basis for the mathematical models. They're they're working backwards. They see the goal and then they try to, you know, fudge uh, data to fit um and and then they call it science so i i before i guess we go further on this i wanted to share with people uh, a quote from uh the club of rome co-founder sir alexander king that he um wrote in 1991 and again people should really keep in mind that the club of rome was what inspired the creation for the world economic forum um, and uh, Alexander King stated, quote, the first global revolution, um, oh wait, no, he wrote in the first global revolution, which was an assessment of the first 30 years of the Club, Club of Rome in retrospect, he wrote, in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. So not only is the real enemy wow. humanity itself, but it's our intervention into natural processes, which is innovation. Anything that we do now um, in terms of innovation to help better things, because it's, you know, we've again been brainwashed to think that innovation means that we must be destructive. Um, and there's no, it's not possible for us to have innovation without being destructive. As we were discussing, it's innovation that has allowed us to have a qualitative upshift in the standard of living for people internationally. The fact that energy now is, it's, it's, we have, um, affordable energy that is abundant and, uh, areas that are lacking in access to affordable energy. Um, it's always due to political reasons. Africa is a, a good example of um, an, a, a region that has been 
uh, forced to uh, rely on loans from the World Bank and the IMF, and these loans have been notoriously under conditions. Um, so they dictate the money can only be used for certain things. And this is one of the primary reasons why today Africa doesn't have some of the most basic things like an electrical grid, um, uh, a well-functioning electrical grid that connects, you know, uh, these large uh, regions because of the politics involved in um, in receiving money. Uh, so this is the thing. This is so important. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to, just to chime in. So many people have been brainwashed to think that the Africans, the reason why they're poor, and I was told this as well by teachers when I was younger, that they're just incapable of self-government. They're not capable of being responsible, and that's why they're in the impoverished conditions. But you're saying there was a calculated decision shaped by pseudoscientific considerations that have artificially kept Africa without coherent electricity grids, water, sanitation, basic standards of living. That's by design. Yeah, I mean, pretty much all of the 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 issues of poverty or even war have been uh, largely manufactured, and the the kind of scarcity that uh, regions are suffering from um, it's artificial scarcity because, again, as we make the point, there is enough food to go around. We're making enough uh, food. It's that the access to food is the issue. Um, or, you know, as Vanessa was uh, was talking with you about uh, earlier on today, the, the fact that there is war in the Middle East, I mean, people should be wondering, why is it that Israel, you know, will every so many years just decide to, to just kind of completely lose it? As you were discussing with Vanessa, it's it's just, it's so over the top, horrible that you you kind of wonder like what are they trying to do here it's like you're you're kind of kicking over the chessboard and the thing is is that a lot of people are not aware that there's a lot of positive progress that's been happening in the middle east that's that's completely historical first of all much of what the middle east is has been a consequence of british geopolitics from the 20th century um and the sykes pico you know um program where you know britain basically created uh saudi arabia you know they created israel um they had the british mandate occupation of palestine like all of these things that are going on in the middle east that uh people are so sick of hearing and think like these are just like maybe i think a lot of people are thinking of it as these are just barbarians that just know how to have war or uh, Afghanistan, these sorts of situations. This has been a ongoing Anglo-American intervention into these countries. And now we see that uh, we have um, China, Russia and Iran who have organized uh, now Saudi Arabia uh, somewhat recently to get on board uh, with a program. Syria, you know, is also a part of this, a program to actually cooperate in development projects and you know cooperate in um, peace projects in the middle east uh, and they're serious these are very um 
serious successes that have been um, going on diplomatically speaking, but also, you know, business investments. Um, and obviously, you know, people have to think business investments are are actually really good for diplomacy. It's that's what any, you know, uh, good diplomat would would recognize because, you know, you you again, it's this idea of cooperation. Both are are agreeing to something where they will both benefit from the agreement, which is going to upshift the standard of living of uh, these areas. And like nobody wants to continue um, the, the war and people who've gone through this for a really long time. And, you know, Saudi Arabia, I think they've woken up as well because it, the United States has made it very clear that they're not going to honor anything at this point. Um, the United States has has um, been caught so many times making promises to this and that country and then breaking it almost immediately right. that these countries realize that why would you be doing the dirty work for you know the anglo-american um geopolitical outlook for the middle east when you're totally expendable in their viewpoint mm -hmm. so uh the china russia iran um strategy is um a long-term strategy for actually building towards something that um can actually create you know an arab community that will actually you know be able to work together in these these kinds mm -hmm. of um, projects and the whole war on terror has been um uh, an, an approach it's it's uh it's you know the arc of crisis it's it was always meant to create stability in order to upset you know what was considered the, the oh i did i say stability yes. what i don't even know what i said but anyway it was to <laughs> to threaten the stability in the area and and ultimately was was aimed at uh russia and uh, china you know the the fact that it should be recognized that the creation of ISIS and 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 the promotion of Al Qaeda and so forth has been you know funded by uh, Anglo Americans. So all of this stuff it's it's political at the end of the day, and we I, it's good news in the sense that we're not naturally like this. the The bad news is that there's there's a lot of uh, institutions and governments right now that are really destructive and 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 problematic in enforcing these things, but we have to just realize that that's what it is. It's a it's a political issue, and to recognize accordingly that you you shouldn't be going along with certain things, you shouldn't be uh, supporting um, certain things with that kind of uh, recognition. But a lot of you know people I think are getting fooled into looking at certain countries as the enemy, like Iran when um it's in no one's you know best interest to try to disrupt the the peace process that's going on in the middle east yeah absolutely well said no i think that'll uh that'll be a good way to roll into our commercial break and we're going to continue this, this discussion when we come back on tnt radio.live jdrf's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes Type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. 
JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who's supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. I tell my son, I love you every single day. Now my dad has never said that to me. Not because he doesn't love me, but because culturally it wasn't comfortable for him. Now that he's a grandfather, he says I love you to my son every time he sees him. My advice to all the fathers out there, forget the cultural restrictions. They grow up way too fast for you to waste even a single precious moment. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to the third segment of the second hour with Cynthia Chung. Uh, we've been talking about her new documentary, our new documentary series with Rising Tide Foundation, Escaping Calypso's Island. It's an ongoing series. Um, we reviewed quickly cynthia shared some horrific remarks by certain neo-malthusians specifically sir alexander king the co-founder of the club of rome describing the importance of using various ideas of scarcity water shortage pollution to unify a scared dumbed down population but he also reminded us in this crazy quote uh from 1991 that we should never forget that the true enemy ultimately is not these things it's human 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 nature itself, mankind, is the ultimate enemy that we have to deal with. Um, this idea, Cynthia, of inevitable uh, crisis, these doomsday prophets using their computer models to extrapolate present trends without any consideration of creativity or technological progress into the future, resulting in these carrying capacity um, assumed limits that we have to adapt to in a Pygmalion effect they ignore certain realities and you've you've t you've you've played with a few examples of increased agricultural productivity uh, over the past 50 years in brazil and china around the world in america um what are some of their examples of creative technological leaps that humans either have made or can made to completely disprove this idea of finite resources adapting to limits what are some exciting things that are that are available well, that's, um, there, there's a, a very good example of the man-made forests. And again, this, this makes, uh, the comments of Sir Alexander King look even more absurd. You know, I, there are extreme people out there, an extreme outlook out there that we should not be doing any kind of intervention on natural processes, including planting trees which I think is really getting to a ridiculous point at this, or, you know, the, the two thirds of the world, I think it's probably a bit less at this point, but about two thirds of the globe is a desert. And it wasn't always um, like that. And, uh, you know, for instance, the Sahara, 
is a large uh, desert in Africa that um, used to be a lush green region. And this uh, desertification of the Sahara happened like long, long, you know, before we had the assumed capability of uh, apparently creating um, climate change. And, and yes, the, this documentary is, is going to challenge that claim. Um, but the Sahara used to be a lush green area. And for whatever reason, there was a, a lot of the water went underground. The, like right now, there's a huge water system under the Sahara. Um, and we've seen with countries like China and India, uh, who also had a lot of their regions um, also desertified um, uh, over, you know, centuries. Um, through actually, because China and India are actually really old too, and the the Loess Plateau, for instance, is, which is one of the, the the best examples of China's success in greening a desert, the Loess Plateau became a desert after China's agricultural um, practices of 9,500 years. So this was like a very long process that had ultimately rendered the the soil um, to a point where they just couldn't grow anything. And so they had um, a campaign to green this area. And now it's a, it's a massive success story. It's um, lifted 2.5 million people out of poverty. It's uh, decreased uh, soil erosion by 60 tons per year. And the success of uh, the agricultural uh, boom that has happened in this area is is uh, is really um, should be a role model for all other areas that are suffering from you know desertified areas that and and have a lack of um, access to agricultural production. So these are these are definitely huge successes that China and India have done with these very large man-made forests as well, which obviously that's that's good for the air. And people need to understand as well that a lot of the hurricane activity that, for instance, hits the eastern coast of the United States, that's based off of the Sahara Desert, where the the air that is very hot that moves over the Sahara Desert, when it goes over the Atlantic Ocean, the cooling effect happens very quickly, which causes uh, hurricane activity, which eventually, you know, slams into the eastern coast of the United States. So by us having a program to green the Sahara Desert, which is totally feasible, as we see with what China and India have done, like China has increased its biomass by 11% over the last 10 years, India by 6.2. Um, and you you can see the, the NASA satellite images how much uh, they've increased the amount of green that they have in their countries uh, based off of these really successful programs. If we were to green the Sahara Desert, we would not only be able to create um, agricultural bounty for this these areas that are, are near the Sahara, but we would also decrease the storm activity that's hitting the eastern coast. And, you know, it's things like that where everything is just blamed kind of lazily on climate change when the situation of the Sahara Desert has existed for centuries. This is not a, a human-made problem. And then there, there is the issue where there's a lot of uh, people who have an extreme outlook that we should not be greening the desert <laughs> because uh, this is now like a natural ecosystem. You know, precisely, we didn't create the Sahara Desert and thus we should not touch it. But even if, like, theoretically we had, according to these people, we should also just leave it. Not we should not it. plant trees. 
there's also like an example of like there's the issue of a salmon uh you know we have a decrease on amount of salmon uh in the pacific area you know we live in in canada and we have like british columbia is uh, a, a huge uh, salmon farming uh, or fishing zone and uh, someone had come up with a solution where you put like copper ores uh to feed the algae and it created like a huge boom of uh, algae which then increased the salmon population uh markedly uh, as well as you know other uh ocean creatures were were going to uh to feast on this like um huge uh algae you know farm and there were people who were actually criticizing this as something really horrible because it was you know changing migratory patterns of whales and things like this it's it's just become so cynical there's just nothing we can do that can be positive even if it is positive it's somehow unnatural we are somehow unnatural and i think that people need to realize that they've been taught to think of themselves that way by the the very you know world economic forum type crowd that that kind of outlook they want us to have that outlook because it's easier to control people if they feel that they just can't do anything in the world mm -hmm. like they can't affect change in any way for the good yeah just adapt to limits and i mean i was i was reminded as you were speaking of of gavin newsom who uh recently put put in something like 500 million dollars of taxpayer money in california to demolish some major strategic hydroelectric dams last year something like four of them because the the logic was well we need to liberate the desert to its natural state these these hydroelectric dams are creating reservoirs they're providing abundant electricity to people who shouldn't even be living there because it's a desert and why are there people there and and it's providing water for farms there shouldn't be farms there it's a desert so let's restore the desert let's liberate and free the desert because it has human rights too don't you know and it, it's like this was just four dams but there's been something like a thousand dams over the past decade that have been demolished across the united states with this logic justifying it um because we should be on electric you know uh, we're, we're all gonna be on windmills and solar panels and we don't need dams anyway that that disrupted salmon uh, migratory patterns anyway so uh, hyd you know uh, uh solar panels windmills that's the future but the reality is as you've pointed out and you're going to be elaborating upon this more in i think episode three coming up soon that this is an incompetent idea of energy policy and that there's much healthier ideas of energy that involve uh, a different idea, a, a, a healthier idea of, of hydrocarbons, but also atomic power, both of which you're saying these are very, very important directions we should be going in. Can you give some examples of why you think that way? And what is it about the failure of, of windmills and solar panels? Like, why are they not going to do the job? Yeah, people, I think, really take for granted where they're, I mean, in the West, where their affordable energy is uh, coming from. And again, like we really do have, for the most part, um, affordable energy. And for the areas where it's not affordable, it's because they're doing the exact sort of things that you're, you're, you're mentioning. Um, and renewables have shown that they're not able to to be reliable for one thing they always are you know needing to be backed up by a fossil fuel energy backup which is used very often 
Um, but also they're just not able to like not all energy is is equal and you can't use renewable energy for certain kinds of uh energy needs that we have and so germany again is just a very good example of how there's there is no country so far in the world who's been able to showcase how they can just operate on renewables and Germany, which claims to be kind of like the most radical in this view, the, the the reality of the situation, I think they have maybe one nuclear plant left and they're they're, you know, convinced that they are going to shut this down. The reality of Germany is that they're importing the so-called dirty energy from other countries. So it's complete hypocrisy. They can't um, actually meet the energy needs for their own people. And they're just paying more money to have it imported from other countries, this so-called dirty energy. So what kind of a plan is that? Uh, and they're going to shut down their last nuclear plant and they don't have an actual sustainable plan for how the renewables are supposed to meet the energy needs for the people. So obviously, what is this? It's it's whether you like it or not, it's a depopulation agenda that you're clearly making um, policy choices that are not going to be able to support the population size that you're dealing with. And people who just are not looking into this enough um, are not aware that that's exactly what's happening. It's not, oh, we're going to shut down dirty energy and you're going to have, you're still going to have energy, but it's going to be now clean energy. You're just not going to have energy. <laughs> um, and in terms of the, the, the very positive things, first of all, uh, fossil fuel energy, which has, you know, been given a very dirty name, we have uh, ways now of producing this energy, which is um, increasingly getting more and more clean. It's not the same kind of technology that was even being used, you know, 15 years ago. So there's there's that for, for one thing, but we're constantly getting better at using these kinds of energies without the pollution um, issues. The other thing is that nuclear energy, which we already have access to for is is uh, something that can create the most reliable energy um, and it's the greatest energy density so it's it's a very good investment especially with a growing population if you want a, a good standard of living and dare i say a, an increasing standard of living um, then nuclear energy is definitely something that we do need to invest in in the future. The fact that we are actually descaling on it is, again, it's part of the depopulation agenda. For example, 300 grams of uranium can supply the energy needs for one person for 80 years at a cost of uh, $60 per kilogram. So wow. this is something that is very positive and i mean let's just restate that again 300 yeah, grams right. you just said of uranium <laughs> can supply one human being for 80 years at a cost of 60 dollars per kilogram which is less than 20 dollars per 300 gram set for one life i'm assuming at a pretty high quality of life for 80 years that's just mm -hmm. let that sink in like this is this is important yeah, and, um, you know, nuclear fusion, which people say, you know, at this point, it will never happen. Well, China is um, pretty serious that it will happen. And they're, they're 
investing and uh, they're making a lot of uh, advances in this. If we were to have the fusion plasma torch right now, the plasma torch exists um, with nuclear energy, but it's it's too expensive um, right now. And it, it tends to only be used by, you know, certain more large scale things. Unfortunately, you know, the military um, uh, largely, I think, uses this. But this is a, a, a something that can turn um, basically anything into its uh, resource, it's it's like ionic components or its isotopes. So you can you can take landfills, the which is a huge crisis right now. The amount of land and like where to put the garbage kind of thing. You can actually um, now use landfills as resource mines with the plasma torch. And if it were a fusion uh, powered plasma torch, it will be extremely uh, cheap to do this, um, where you can reduce the uh, the garbage to its isotopic components. And then you can use this to create um, better quality material than we can right now, including like stronger uh, metal, for instance, so that we can build infrastructure that actually lasts a lot longer, that's a lot more um, durable and uh, stable. So these are very, very feasible things that are just constantly um, being attacked. Like the United States is investing in the this idea of fusion power. It's just that as with most scientific uh, endeavors in the United States, it's based on a military uh, industrial complex viewpoint, which is really terrible. They don't invest in these things for the benefit of the, the people. Um, but the fact that China is doing this is also forcing um, them to also kind of step up their game. And it really does look like fusion is going to be something in the somewhat near future. And uh, this this idea, too, of uh, I think China has been able to. Well, anyway, they're 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 also getting very serious in terms of going to the moon, which has a huge abundance of helium three, which is again like this is the most efficient thing that you can use for fusion power. Which again, it's going to it's going to cause such a a boon, an economic yeah. boon internationally, which is a really positive uh, positive thing. Yeah, the the Russians and the Chinese have have a. a signed a, an agreement to co-manage the development of an industrial and scientific complex on the moon for permanent as a permanent installation which if we can avoid world war three it looks like the timeline is for 2030 or so for that to be uh set into motion and as you just pointed out helium-3 is in abundance there's there's millions of tons of this on the moon um i was reading a study that showcased that one small truckload of helium-3 would power uh, 8 billion people's lives in an industrial economy for a year, one truckload. So you can only imagine if people, if this starts actually becoming integrated into the, the productive process and the human economy, my God, like what happens to all of these limits to growth models, which have been like proclaiming doomsday scenarios for decades and centuries even, what happens? They will be wrong to that. yet again. <laughs> yeah, they're, I mean, they're yet always wrong. Yes, and uh, in episode uh, one of uh, the Calypso's Island, we also go over, you know, some of the predictions for climate catastrophe that were going on, you know, in the 70s. They were making predictions that by this time there wouldn't be any, like, air left. Everybody would need to wear gas masks. These were, these were like, leading experts in predicting climate catastrophe, and it's like an ongoing, you know, thing. But they're always wrong. Yeah. 
we just keep believing in them for some reason. Yeah, yeah, it's time we, we let these these haunting ghosts really just get exercised and uh, move on with life. Well, how can people reach you? we got about 10 seconds. Um, my Substack's probably the best through A Glass Darkly by Cynthia Chung and, uh, of course, the RisingTaiFoundation.net uh, website. Fantastic. Thank you, Cynthia. All right. Till next time. Thank you.